Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, Tough Questions. When we follow Jesus as our Lord, we do so by faith, but not blind faith. So somewhere along the way, questions will arise. That's good because seeking answers will help us grow deeper in faith. Tough Questions tackles some of the difficult questions people have about Christianity. During the past several months, as we transition to live streaming our services on Sundays, we have created an online library of videos. If you're interested in listening to or watching any of our previous messages, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. However, moving forward, these messages will be available as part of our sermon podcast as well. Enjoy. Well, good morning, everybody here on campus and as well as on our, our online campus. We're glad you're all here. We're in this series called Tough Questions, and we're going to be looking at another tough question that we get as followers of Jesus Christ. But let, let me just start off with you know sharing a little bit about uh, what I've been doing during the pandemic. I love to hike, and I love to be outdoors, and during this time, I've discovered actually a wealth of new trails to explore all around us. Now, this kind of uh, being outdoors and hiking has led me to uh, hike uh, as many mountains as I can, and uh, I uh, love to go to the White Mountains of uh, New England, and uh, there are 48 mountains in New England that are 4,000 feet or higher, and uh, I've hiked a quarter of them, and I'd love to get all 48 you know, before I, I run out of the ability to, to hike. Now, the reality is there are some mountains I don't think I'll ever hike because they require some things that I don't want to, for instance, Mount Everest. So I don't really have any desire to hike those, but I I am curious about them and and I read about them. And you may have noticed this week that Mount Everest was in the news. And uh, I did a little research on Mount Everest because, you know, I always thought there was only one way to the top of Mount Everest. But according to National Geographic, there are actually 17 different ways to get to the top of Mount Everest. And by the way, none of them involve a helicopter, okay? So uh, with that in mind today, you know, when it comes to religion, some people see that humanity's religious search for God is like climbing a mountain. Just like there are many ways to the top of a mountain, people think that there are many ways to God, many ways to heaven. So today, we're going to look at this tough question about the Christian faith, which is, are all religions the same in the end? In other words, do they all lead to God? So just a little background information. You know, there are a myriad of religions and religious views in the world, but let's just sort of level it out and understand how the largest ones are. The the largest Uh, Religion in the world by followers is Christianity with 2.4 billion. After that is Islam with 1.8 billion followers, followed by Hinduism with 1.2 billion followers, and then with Buddhism, which has about uh, over half a billion followers. Now, when it comes to how these religions teach that people get to God and go to heaven, There are really four distinct views on that. Now, some uh, teach that it's a non-issue, that it's not existent. Mostly uh, those would be uh, um, like atheism. Uh, But religions like Hinduism and Buddhism teach that hard work and wisdom can lead to complete unity with God. Religions like Islam teach that faith in God plus the completion of more good works than bad works should get you to heaven. Now, this idea of salvation by both faith and good works is also what some uh, religious cults uh, would adhere to. 
and as well as some Christian denominations teach. But it is only biblical Christianity that teaches that salvation is a free gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as exclusive as that sounds, we believe that faith in Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to eternal life. Uh, years ago, there was <clears throat> a British conference on comparative religions that brought together experts from all around the world to debate what was unique, if anything, about the Christian faith in relation to all other religions. Was it the idea that God became a man? No, other religions had variation, variations on that one. Even the Greek myths were about God appearing in human form. Was it heaven? Was it life after death or an eternal soul? Was it love for your neighbor, good works, care for the poor? Was it about sin or hell or judgment? The debate went on for some time until one person walked into the room, C.S. Lewis. Now, uh, if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, you may know that he journeyed from atheism to agnosticism to ultimately becoming a Christian. And actually, he became uh, one of the most well-known and leading Christian thinkers and writers in history. Some of you may be familiar, he wrote the children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Now, Lewis asked when he went into the room, what was the debate about? And he found out his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution, uh, what it was among all the world's religion. And he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace. And after they thought about it, they had to agree the heart of the Christian message is the heart of the message that Jesus brought to the world. It was grace coupled with truth. It is this grace that separates biblical Christianity from all other religious faiths. Now, to understand what grace is, it helps us to know why we need grace so badly. So, we're going to turn to the Bible to understand this. And the first thing that I want us to look at is the nature of God. What do we know about God? Well, we know this. God is holy. He tells us this in the book of Leviticus. He says, therefore, you must be holy because I am holy. So God is saying that we're supposed to be holy like he is holy. And what does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart for goodness and righteousness. Specifically, God is set apart from sin. God cannot come into the presence of sin. Sin repels God. Now think about this. Have you ever tried to take two magnets with opposite polarities and push them together? They will not go. They will repel each other. Well, that's what sin does to God. It repels God. No matter how hard you try to get connected to God, if you have sin in your life, you're repelled from God. God will not get near sin. You could say this. You could say God is allergic to sin. Now, if you have an allergy to anything, you've learned that the only way to really deal with that is to avoid that allergen at all cost. In his holiness, God does not want to be near sin. But God is not just holy. God is also loving. The Bible tells us that God is love. So that means that God loves us, his creations, even though he's holy. 
Now think about this. Have you ever loved someone, but because of their behavior, you couldn't stand to be around them? Yep. More than once, I've heard a frustrated parent say, I love my child so much, but right now I don't like them. And why do they do that? Because they're struggling with their complete unconditional love for their child who is at a crossroads with them because their behavior that they are involved in disgusts their parents. That's the same tension that God has for all of us. Because God is love, he has unconditional love for us, but because he is holy, he is disgusted and repelled by our sin. Here's the next thing that we need to know as we explore grace. We need to understand about the law of God. We need to understand that the law, what the law of God is about. It's not arbitrary, it's not heavy-handed. It was given to us to teach us what is right from what is wrong. When you read through the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you will see many of the individual laws that make up the law of God. And you will see that all of those laws work for us to have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with one another. When we follow the law, it keeps us connected to God. But when we disobey the law, it offends God and we sin and we're separated from God. When we disobey the law, it's actually an attack on the very nature of God. It's cosmic treason. And God makes it very clear that there is a consequence for disobeying the law and sinning. The Bible tells us what that is. It says, the wages of sin is death. Now, we're talking about spiritual death. Sin breaks our relationship with God. Our our spiritual connection is broken. It's spiritual death because God is repelled by our sin. So he leaves us in our sin, and the penalty for that, the Bible says, is death. That takes us to the next thing that we need to understand. It's our human condition. All of us need to understand that we're sinners, The Apostle Paul understood this. He said, the good I know to do, I do not do. He grappled with his own sinfulness. Our sin is part of our human nature. No matter how hard we try not to sin, we end up sinning. Now, the word sin is an interesting term. It it comes from archery, and uh, it it basically means um, to miss the mark. So if... You're shooting an arrow at a target and you miss the target. It's called a sin. It doesn't matter if you miss that target by an inch or by a mile. It is still called a sin. It's missing the mark. So the Bible makes it very clear about us. It says, for everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious plan, his glorious standard. When we say we are all sinners, we understand that that means we do sinful things that we didn't intend to do, those ones that we do accidentally or not even aware of at the time, and those things that we do on purpose. And there's this understanding that try as we might, we can't stop from sinning. We can't fix our sinfulness. There is nothing that we can do on our own to restore our relationship with God because our sin gets in the way. 
The reality is, even if we wanted to stack up good sins against bad sins, the bad sins, the bad deeds, good deeds against bad deeds, the bad deeds would always win. We are sinful people. Now that brings us to what we understand as the sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, we see that God put together a payment system for sin to deal with our sins, the sins of humanity. The system was based on that death penalty, that penalty that you have to die for your sins. But God allowed in his mercy a sacrifice to be made to pay for those sins. Now, since the penalty for sin was death, God decreed a system of animal sacrifices that could be made to pay for human sins. And when you read through the book of Leviticus, you will see the different kind of sacrifices that can be made. You see, God's love allowed for our sin to be addressed through the sacrificial death of an animal. Now, I know that seems strange to us in 2020, uh, but what God did was intentional. He wanted us to see the severity of our sin. He wanted people to see that pain for sin the sin that comes between us and God is messy, is gruesome and costly because it is all of those things, messy, gruesome and costly. He wanted us to see that really the issue was a life or death issue and the symbol he wanted us to understand was real. So the sacrifice was then a substitute for the sinner's death. The sacrificial animal bore the sinner's guilt. When we read about the sacrificial system for the payment of sins, when you do that, you will notice that God required the best animals to be sacrificed. Why? Because sin is costly. And the payment needed to reflect that costliness. So God told us to sacrifice animals that were perfect, without blemish, without defect. In other words, sacrifice your most perfect, the costliest animal you have. Give God your best. Because when we sinned, we were not giving God our best. Now we have to understand that this sacrificial system was not a permanent solution. The, the system didn't deal with sins once and for all because the reality was you had to continue to make sacrifices to pay for the fact that you're continually a sinner. The system didn't deal with, with sins once and for all. But it did foreshadow something that God would do. And that takes us to our Savior, Jesus. Jesus was the one who was being foreshadowed by the sacrificial system. He was the perfect, sinless one who would be sacrificed, perfect without defect, without sin. So instead of an animal's blood being shed, it was Jesus' blood that was shed for our sins on the cross. John the Baptist understood this when he looked at Jesus and said that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He saw and made the connection. This sacrifice is where we see God's holiness intersecting with God's love. This is where justice meets mercy. God cannot deal with sin except as his holiness allows it. If God did not punish sin or make adequate satisfaction for it, he would have been forgiving us unjustly. That was not 
that would not be according to his will. He could not make adequate satisfaction for what was going on. He couldn't just wave it away with his hands. His holiness demanded that sin be punished. And the punishment was death. And so his love for us had Jesus take our place as a substitute for our death. When Jesus died on the cross for us, he became our sacrifice for us. He took our place. He took the punishment for our sins that we deserved. He paid the ultimate price for our sins. And not only for your sins and my sins, but Jesus took on himself the full weight of all of the sins of humanity, past, present, and future. Now we sort of see the whole picture of grace coming into view. And this is the thing, grace is the thing that separates biblical Christianity from all other religious faiths. Let me give you a simple definition of grace. That which is freely given and totally undeserved. That which is freely given and totally undeserved. That's what Jesus did for us. Do you see it? Do you see what God has done for you in all of humanity despite our self-centered sinfulness? This is how the, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in the book of Romans. He said, you know, we can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for. And we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. That's grace. It's this gracious act of sacrificial love that shows us how Christianity is different from all other religions. Basically, all other world religions are based on a good works model of salvation. The road to heaven and to God then has to be paved with good deeds all the time. In fact, more good deeds than bad deeds. And in the end, that sum total of good deeds has to be greater than the sum total of bad deeds but even still, in some of these faiths, there's no assurance that that's still good enough to get to God. Let me take a, a real-life story and, and help us see what grace looks like. In the Gospel of John, Jesus has this encounter. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. And then he declared, go now and leave your life of sin. 
So while this is a story of grace, we also see that it's the story of sin. And so let's unpack that just for a second. There's a lot of sin going on in this story. First, there is the sin of the people who brought this woman to Jesus. They didn't bring her out. They didn't have to bring her out in public and shame her and humiliate her, but they had an agenda. They wanted to trap Jesus. To him, they had, uh, to them, they had found the perfect way for Jesus to be trapped because if Jesus told the crowd that she needed to be stoned for her offense, this would pit him against the Roman authorities because only the Roman authorities had the ability, the authority to exact capital punishment. And that's what stoning would be. And so Jesus would be in trouble with the Romans. They probably would have arrested him. On the other hand, if he didn't say to stone the woman, the Pharisees would say, look, he is soft on sin because the Bible demands that we have to deal with our sin. And, and so we see that these people were using this woman. They were, they were heartless in their sinfulness because they just wanted to use her to get to Jesus. But they weren't the only people who sinned. There were others who sinned. In fact, these were the individuals who caught the woman and the man in the act. Now, as sick as that sounds, they were caught in the act of adultery because Scripture demands that someone has to be caught in that act so that no one is accused falsely and put to death falsely. And Scripture says it has to be at least two witnesses. So at least two people caught this couple. And more than likely, they set the couple up. They probably did that. Why? Because the Old Testament law also says, if you see a brother or sister is about to sin, you need to intervene and keep them from sinning. And obviously, that didn't happen there. There was no intervention. They were setting them up, and they were sinning against this couple. Then, of course, there was the couple. There was the man, the man who was engaged in adultery. He sinned. Why wasn't he brought there? He wasn't brought there because the law specifically didn't say what it said about this woman. And I'll get to that in a second. But we know this man was acting sinful. So let's talk about the woman. Obviously, she sinned by committing adultery. But her sin, we know from the punishment that was supposed to be meted out to her, was even more so that, that she actually had betrayed her fiancé because the law said if a woman who was engaged commits adultery that she may be, must be stoned. And that was the specific kind of punishment for a woman who was engaged. So we know she too sinned. I appreciate the questions that uh, James Emery White, a pastor and uh, professor, asked about what we just saw in this scripture. He says, so who deserves to be stoned in this story? Who deserves to die? Who in this story has engaged in heinous, premeditated, purposeful pursuit of sinful behavior before a holy God, holding this God in contempt with their behavior? All of them have. All of them just like all of us do with our sinful behavior. So you remember Jesus' response? He, let, he said, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And when no one condemns her, Jesus tells her he doesn't condemn her either. And that's what grace looks like. Knowing 
that someone has done wrong but not condemning them. You see, everybody who was watching Jesus saw this woman as deserving death. They saw her as someone who needed to be stoned for her sins. But Jesus saw a precious child of God who is loved and who deserves grace despite her sinful mistakes. But the story doesn't end right there with that gracious response with Jesus. After telling her that he doesn't condemn her, he says, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus is speaking truth to her, grace and truth. He's speaking truth to her. He says, now you have to deal with what brought you to this point. You have to respond to the grace that God has given you by following the truth of God. You see, God believes we deserve grace despite our sinful mistakes. But to understand this message of Jesus' grace correctly, we have to understand that it's not just about grace. It's about grace and truth. See, grace and truth are inextricably intertwined. Jesus accepted her as someone who mattered to him and mattered to God, but never once did Jesus affirm the life she had been living. Jesus did not condemn her for what she did, but Jesus did not condone what she did either. Personal acceptance was never combined with lifestyle affirmation. Grace and truth went together, which means Jesus comes to our defense when we are about to get stoned, but he also is the first one to tell us to stop sleeping around or stop doing anything that is sinful in our lives. So that brings us back to the original question. Are all religions the same in the end? No, they're not. Only biblical Christianity tells us that we're saved by grace and then tells us to go and sin no more. You see, we deserve death for our sin, but we believe Jesus and he will save us. And then he will say, listen, now that you believe in me, follow me and don't sin anymore. This is what Paul wrote in the, the book of Ephesians. It captures that grace and that truth. He said, for it is by grace that you've been saved by faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God to you, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're given grace, and then we're given truth to follow Jesus. So when we believe in Jesus, we're saved by grace not by anything we do. And when we're saved by grace, he tells us, now that you know the truth, walk in the truth and follow me. This grace and truth is what makes biblical Christianity different from all other religions. Now, truthfully, Christianity is, is less of a religion and more of a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And every single person in this world is offered that grace and that relationship with God through faith. And then the truth, to go and sin no more. In the book of Romans, we read how this happens. 
Paul writes, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So listen, if you understand grace now and you've never professed with your mouth that you believe in Jesus and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can do that today and understand that God loves you and forgives you of your sin and he tells you to go and sin no more and follow Jesus. You can become a follower of Jesus today. So if you've never done that, whether you're here in this room or you're online, wherever you are, and if you want to become a follower of Jesus today, I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer, very simple prayer. You can put it in your own words. I'll give it to you phrase by phrase, but it's your opportunity to tell Jesus you believe in him and that you believe he was raised from the dead and that you want to follow him. And then I'm going to pray for each and every one of us that we would embrace this message of grace and truth and we wouldn't be shy about sharing that message of grace and truth with others in very loving ways. So wherever you are, in this room, at home, wherever, just bow your heads. And if you want to pray this beginning prayer, just repeat it after me silently wherever you are. So let's pray. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins. And I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And now I commit my life to following him. So we'll continue in a time of prayer. Father, I pray for each one of us. Those of us who have just now received this grace and truth or those of us who have received it before, help us walk it out. Help us live it out. Help us turn to you when we sin and ask for forgiveness and recommit to following you. Help us become fully devoted followers. And for those of us who have become followers of you for the first time, help us walk in that truth. Help us have the courage to share this decision with someone else so that they can encourage us. And help all of us be messengers of your grace and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, we would love to put some material in your hands. So just go to the connection card on the app or send us an email at connect at valleybrook.cc and we'll send you a free, simple booklet about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.